So we are starting this brand new series, a nine-week series on the one thing that if you get right makes all the difference. Now, I want to start by asking you this question. What is your life's one message? As part of our discussion, I said, what are you known for? And we kind of chatted a little bit about what, what we're known for, what people think about when they think about us. But I want to ask you the deeper question, what do you want to be known for? If your life had one message, if you had one opportunity to preach, say, one message to the one group of people that you really wanted to hear what you had to say, you had only one chance to preach to that one group of people, to speak to that one group of people, to teach that one group of people the one message you wanted them to hear, what would you say? What would be on your heart? For me, i got to be honest with you, the one thing that's most important to me, or at least that I want to be most important to me, and the one thing that I want to be most known for is the one thing that Jesus called his one thing. I want my one thing to be his one thing. And I want, if people ever to think anything about me, I want them to think about this one thing that Jesus said. And so we're going to spend some deep time in this over the next few weeks. It all begins with this passage from the Gospel of Mark. It's in Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 31. It's so important. I printed it on your note sheet in full. It says this, One of the teachers of the law came and heard Jesus debating with a bunch of other people. Noticing that Jesus had given those other people a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And then Jesus says, the most important one, pay attention, the most important one, the single most important command is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus does an amazing thing there where he combines a whole bunch of and words together into a one thing. Because Jesus knows that God himself has described himself to his people as one. And Jesus knows that whatever is on the heart of the Father is a one thing. And so he wants us to love him with all our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. But that's just one thing. That's just loving God with all of y'all. Loving God with everything that you are. Loving God completely. You and I separate ourselves up into heart, soul, mind, and strength. But Jesus is like, no, it's just you. I want you, and I want all of you, the whole of you. The one you that is you, I want it all. Love God. But then that's not enough. He says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Which, again, is interesting because I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. That means I like to think of my neighbor as different from me. I like to think of my neighbor as independent from me. I like to think of myself as independent from those other people. And sometimes that's a good, that's a very good mental health thing for you to practice, differentiating yourself from other people. That is a good mental health thing to do. But it is also a terrible bad thing to do when it comes to the issue of love. When it comes to the issue of why God made us in the first place, I think of myself as different from them. And Jesus says, no, as yourself. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. Again, the differentiation, Jesus is like, no, it's just one thing. Oh, and by the way, there is no commandment, singular, greater than these, plural. Jesus has one thing. You and I split it up into a whole bunch of things. Sometimes we need to split it up into a whole bunch of things so that we can understand it. We're going to spend nine weeks splitting it up into a whole bunch of things. And we're going to talk about all those different things underneath this umbrella of the one thing. Because this one thing is Jesus' one thing, and it should be our one thing too. But today, partially because it's Gratitude Sunday, partially because it's our first Sunday on this topic, I don't want to do a deep dive on any one of these individual sorts of things. Today I want to give you a big picture of what it means to live this one thing. And I'm going to give you this big picture, and it's going to involve one particular practical application. And I'm going to warn you now, the practical application will involve your money. But it's all about this big picture thing. What is the one thing Jesus wants, and how does it really apply into our lives? I want to take you into Mark chapter 10. Because we're going to see in Mark chapter 10 a story of a person who is blocked from the one thing. The story of a person who cannot enter into the one thing because something else is preventing it. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, it says this, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is a question that is commonly asked. It's a question that is frequently asked, especially among sort of spiritual-minded people. Anyone who is concerned about the afterlife generally will come up with this question at some point in time, asking, what do I really need to do? Last week, we had a time of live question and answer, and this question came up. One of the questions that came through our system said effectively this, truly... What does a person really need to do to go to heaven? It's a very simple, straightforward kind of question, right? But I want to warn you that this question is a question that presupposes that there is a one thing that I could do. There's a, there's a one thing. In fact, let me show you the same exact verse the way Matthew wrote it down. In Matthew chapter 19, Matthew was there when all this happened. He wrote it down like this. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? He even specifies it. What good thing? What is the one thing that I could do that gets me eternal life? When I was a kid, I went to church all the time because my dad was a pastor. And you got to know that I knew I had it memorized what the one thing was. The one thing that you have to do in order to go to heaven is pray to ask Jesus into your heart. That was the thing. In my church tradition, it was pray to ask Jesus into your heart. And anyone who had prayed to ask Jesus into their heart had done the one thing. My friends and I jokingly referred to it as fire insurance because You weren't going to deal with the fire of hell. You got heaven, and all it took was a little prayer. 
Now, my friends and I also were kind of paranoid because we lived in the church world where we were regularly reminded that we were terrible human beings. And since we were regularly reminded of how bad we were, especially when we were in junior high, because, oh my goodness, junior hires are evil. But anyway, so we were regularly reminded of how bad we were. And so as a result, we were regularly asking Jesus into our heart. It was a friend where, it was a, it was a situation where my friend might come up to me and he was like, hey, I asked Jesus into my heart again last night. And it's like, good job, man. Keep it going. Um, I'm going five minutes now. It's been five minutes since last time. And that was just my tradition. You know, that was just the way we sort of lived in it. My wife grew up in a completely different tradition. My wife grew up in a Catholic tradition. And I know there's lots of positives and negatives. There's lots of people who, who say bad things about Catholics, and there are a lot of good things that need to be said about Catholics. My wife grew up in a tradition, and we just covered this a little bit last night as we were chatting about it. But this, this tradition that basically said, if you had an unconfessed sin on your soul when you died, that was it. You were done. It was over. And so for them, it was very much this kind of idea where you have to keep asking Jesus back into your heart all over again. The one thing you have to do, you just might have to do a whole lot of times, you know, but there's just one thing that I need to do. When my wife um, got older, she encountered people who told her different things about Scripture. Now, her time in the Catholic Church was really, really beneficial to her. It was really good. She was in a Catholic church that was run by Franciscan monks, and they were very, very much about people building a personal relationship with Jesus and understanding their Bible. And so she read her Bible. She, she had a relationship with God. She went through confirmation and first communion and all that kind of stuff that was just absolutely beautiful in her life. But she had this moment at the bus stop. When she was standing there at the bus stop waiting in second grade for the bus, and she's there with her friend, and her friend said, what did you do in this, this last weekend? And Jen said whatever it was that she did, and it was probably involved going to church with her mom. And then the friend said what she did is she went to her church. She went to the Christian church. And my wife, Jen, when she was in second grade, said, what do you mean you can't, you can't go to the Christian church? We're all Christians. And then the other lady, the, the other girl, was like, what do you mean we're all Christians? No, you're not, unless you've asked Jesus into your heart. And so right there at the bus stop, my wife asked Jesus into her heart because her friend had told her, you need to ask Jesus into your heart. So they prayed together right there at the bus stop, which I think is an amazing sort of story. And then, then Jen spent multiple times over at that girl's house and her mom and dad continued to reinforce this idea that God loved, loved her and that she was saved and all this stuff. And then she, she grew up, she went to college, she came here to Purdue, she got in a relationship with some people at an uh, organization that today goes by the name of Crew. It used to be called Campus Crusade, but Crusades have a real negative connotation, and so they modified their name. They modified their name, and so now it's just known as Crew. But she was part of this group, and she was in this Bible study, and she was talking to these other people, and they asked her what are known as the Kennedy questions. I don't know if you've ever heard of these before. Invented by a, a pastor named D. James Kennedy, but the Kennedy questions go like this. It, and they're very intrusive, but also kind of maybe important. Anyway, they go like this. They ask you, first of all, if you were to die today, where would you go? Heaven or hell? Okay, just put a person right on the spot. And Jen said, well, I hope heaven, which was just raw meat 
for the, for the Campus Crusade people because uh, one of the big things they want you to, to have is something called assurance of salvation. And so, so she said, I hope I'm going to go to heaven. And then the second question is, uh, so how sure are you? And she said, I don't know, maybe like 30, 50%, 60%, 80%. You know, it's all up to God. He makes the final choice. And so then the third question is, what reason would you give that you might be allowed into heaven? And the bottom line is they then started to tell her that as long as she had prayed that prayer when she was a second grader at that bus stop, she was in. She was good to go. And she was so angry at them. Because why in the world would God have such a glaring loophole in the system? You know, that's such, a, that's such an egregious loophole Then all of the moral stuff that people are supposed to be doing could just be tossed out the window because when you were in second grade, you prayed once. And so she tried to prove them wrong. And she studied her Bible hardcore for the next few weeks trying to discover what this loophole was all about. And finally, she got convinced that neither side was exactly right, okay? She finally got convinced that yes, God promises eternal life. And you can be aware of and assured of that promise. And no, it isn't as simple as just simply saying magic words. The question, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life, has been on people's hearts and minds for a long time. And this guy is coming to Jesus because if anyone has the answer, it would be Jesus, right? So let's see what Jesus has to say. The guy says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus says this, verse 18, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. I love anytime Jesus just throws a wrench in the works. Here's this person and he's on a roll. He's like, Jesus, I want to know the one thing. Just give me the one thing. Give me the thing that I need to know in order to get eternal life. How many times do I need to pray the prayer? What prayer do I need to pray? What kind of things do I need to confess? Are there different kinds of sins that I need to confess this sin differently from this sin? Jesus, just give me the one thing I need to do. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Like going all the way back to the beginning of the sentence. We've all forgotten the beginning of the sentence before. The guy, goes, the guy goes up to Jesus. He says, good teacher. We've forgotten that part. We're all on the other part. And Jesus is like, no, I want to go back to that one. Why do you call me good? No one's good except God. Jesus is doing two things there. And I love it when Jesus does the subversive, manipulative sort of things. The first thing Jesus is doing is he's saying that he, somehow is connected to God. You've just called me good, but the only one who's good is God. Did you know you just did what you did? I can imagine there's a little bit of a smirk going on that no one else can see and no one else can pick up because at this time, no one really thinks that Jesus is God. They just think he's like a good guy. It's not until after he rises from the dead that people are like, oh, okay. Maybe there's, maybe there's a lot more to this guy than we imagined. But at this point in time, Jesus is like, huh, you called me good. No one's good but God. Anyway, his second point is he's trying to redirect the man's awareness from himself. What do I need to do to get eternal life? And redirect the man's awareness to God. Who is God? What is God like? 
There's only one person who's good, and that's God. You see, here's what's going on. Here's the dynamic that's happening. This man thinks that God works like everything else in his life. This man thinks that God works like all the other things in his life. For example, in this man's life, he knows that if he does A, B, and C, he will get D. This man knows that if he follows a certain rule of causality, he will get a certain amount of effects. This man knows that if he talks to this person this way, he will get that person to do this thing. He lives in a transactional world. And as we're going to find out, this man is very rich. And all rich people know the same principle. You get whatever you want as long as you know how to get it. Transactional. That's just the way the world works. That's the world that he lives in. And he thinks God is the same way. And so do you and I. We are constantly tempted. This is something I think you need to write down. We are constantly tempted to think of God as a transactional God. And if he's a transactional God, that means he can be manipulated. Here's the situation, Jesus. I want to get to heaven. I know I can't buy my way into heaven but I'm sure there is something I can do to get there. Tell me, what is the thing that I need to do in order to convince God that I get into heaven? Where do I buy my ticket? What do I need to do to get in? What is the thing, what is the transaction that needs to happen? Because guess what, Jesus? I'm a rich man, and I get anything that I want because I know how to work the system. And Jesus says, hold on a second. Do you even know God? God is good. See, that's, that's different. Transactions are easy. It doesn't matter if the cop is good. Enough money can convince the cop that maybe this one time, one thing can slide. It doesn't matter how good someone in this world seems to be. There are ways to transact with even them. But Jesus says, hang on a second. God is good. You're not going to find a loophole with God. You're not going to find a manipulative tactic with God. If you want to be connected to God, the only way to do that is to also be good. Not doing a good thing. Not even doing a good thing multiple times. God is good. If you want to be connected to God, somehow you have to be good. I'll tell you another little story. I don't, I, I don't really know why I'm going to tell you this story, but I think it'll make sense by the end. Um, when I was in high school, I was good at manipulating my teachers. That's the kind of good that I was really good at. Um, I, I had one teacher in particular that I enjoyed manipulating. His name was Mr. Watson. And I went to a small Christian school, and the problem with small Christian schools is that they frequently hire people who are not qualified for the job to do the teaching because it's hard to find exceptionally qualified teachers who are willing to work in a Christian school sometimes because Christian schools don't pay any money. Okay, so Mr. Watson came to our school and he was doing multiple jobs in our school. One of the jobs he was doing was teaching Bible. Another one of the jobs he was doing was teaching chemistry. Okay, 
And so, I mean, this, this is the kind of thing. And then he also was involved in some of the administrative stuff of the school. He's now, I believe, currently or was for a time, the principal of the school. But nonetheless, when I went to the school, he was teaching me Bible. He was teaching chemistry. He was teaching a couple other classes too. And he would always say the same things in his talks. When he was giving us whatever kind of either a lecture or a lesson or whatever he was doing, he would frequently go off onto these tangents of these other particular things. And I just made mental notes of all the little things that he was super excited about. I made mental notes of all the little things that he would talk about. And I would draw down the diagrams that he would put on the overhead projector that he would put on the overhead projector and I would draw down I would draw a copy of the diagram so I would have them with me and this is how it worked when we would come to a test he would love to give us multiple choice tests and he was one of these teachers who loved designing the multiple choice tests where it felt like every answer was right you know what I mean? You've been there. It feels like every answer is right, and so then you have to pick which one is the best answer, and of course, the last answer is always all of the above, and so you have to go through this insane process of elimination anyway. So what I would do is I would eliminate a couple of them if I could, and then I'd get down to like two of them, and I would say, Mr. Watson, I have a question. You know, it's the middle of a test, but I don't care. I'd say, Mr. Watson, I have a question. He'd come over to my desk, and I would say, kind of whispery, or sometimes I'd go over to his desk, and I'd say, I've got it narrowed down to these two. And I would give him the answer I knew he wanted to hear for why each one was right. And so I would say, and this one is, I know this one is, and I would say why it was right, and then this other one, but it also, and I would explain why it was probably right. And while I'm explaining to him, I'm looking at his eyes, and I'm looking at his facial expressions, and I'm trying to decipher whatever sort of, you know, physical body cues he's giving to try to figure out which of the answers that I have just said out loud is right or not. And it only worked like five, maybe 10% of the time, but that 10% of the time, that's the difference between an A and an A plus, baby. And so you're going you're gonna to go there. You're going to use that technique when you can. I remember one night, it was midnight, and I was done with all my homework, and I looked at my folder to see what else was due, and I realized, oh my goodness, I have a paper for, for Mr. Watson that's due the next day that I had done no research for. I had spent no time preparing for it whatsoever, but it was due the next day, and I was like, okay, fine. Turned on my computer, my little Commodore 64, and I start typing into that thing, tappity, 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 and I type for about an hour just as much gibberish as I can, regurgitating all of the little things that he had said, putting the diagrams in verbal form, because you couldn't draw diagrams on a Commodore 64, but putting all those diagrams into the, into the words that I was saying, and I just, I got an A plus on that paper two weeks later. No research whatsoever. Just snowed my way through the whole thing. You know why? Because human beings can be manipulated, but God cannot. And the reason I feel the way I feel about such things The reason I talk to the manager when my restaurant order is wrong. The reason I call the phone number when I've gotten a fee in my bank system or something and I talk my way out of it. The reason I frequently call my internet provider and pretend to cancel so they will give me an initial deal, a new, you know, retention deal or whatever. The reason I do all these things is because I approach the world from the mindset of wealth. Let me explain that. I approach the world from the mindset that I have an abundance out there that is available to me 
if I do the right thing to get it. That there is abundance out there that if I do the right thing, I can get it. If I call the right person, talk to the right person, have the right conversation, say the right thing, then I can get whatever is out there for me. I live in a mindset of abundance, a mindset of wealth. Now, some of you don't live that way. Some of you would live more on the mindset of poverty or the mindset of victimhood, the mindset that says, well, things just are the way they are, and if they're charging me that fee, I have to pay that fee. And I'm the kind of person who's the irritating person who calls the customer service and starts out being all super nice and then eventually asks to talk to their manager. Because I live in a world where I believe there's an abundance out there that if I do the right thing, I can get it for me. Now, I'm not telling you that's the right way to live. What I'm telling you is that that's a mindset that has infected this man. And he thinks he can manipulate God. But Jesus isn't going to have it. Jesus isn't going to allow that bubble to stay unbursted. Jesus is going to pop it. Take a look at this. Verse 19. Jesus says to him, You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. The Gospel of Mark is the only one that adds that extra little line there that Jesus loved him. And I think it's because Jesus is about to say a thing that will hurt him. And just like a parent that loves a child, when you have to lead that child through pain in order for them to learn the lesson that they need to learn, it hurts. And Jesus loved him and he said, one thing you lack. He said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. If you keep reading later on, Jesus will do that mention of the camel and the eye of the needle. But it's this part right here where Jesus says to the man that he needs to sell everything and give to the poor and come and follow him. When I was younger, I read that passage and I was confused because I was told the one thing you need to do is ask Jesus into your heart. And now this man has asked Jesus the exact same question. What do I need to do to receive eternal life? And Jesus says to this man, sell everything you own, give to the poor, and then follow me. Don't follow me until after you have sold everything and given to the poor. Sell, give, then follow. And I'm like, hold on a second here. That, doesn't sound, that sounds like some sort of works thing. And I was told that all I needed to do was jump through this one particular loophole. But then again, I was off the hook because I wasn't rich. See, my family only had one car. And, uh, and we, only had, we only had a relatively medium-sized house. I mean, based on all of the houses in our neighborhood, our house was basically the same size as all the other houses in the neighborhood. And, you know, the... The school that I went to, the, the private school that I went to, um, we got into that private school because my dad was the pastor of the church, and so they didn't charge us any money for that particular school. And my mom had a full-time job as well, both of them college-educated. They had average jobs for college-educated people. We were not rich, right? I mean, there were so many other people far more wealthy than I. 
far more wealthy than we were, right? And so because I could constantly compare myself to other people who were more rich, those were the people who are rich and we're the people who are normal. We were the people who were normal. And since we were normal people and they were rich people, this passage doesn't apply to me because this passage talks about how hard it is for rich people to enter the kingdom of God, but it's a good thing I'm not rich. Jesus actually gives this man an answer that you and I didn't necessarily see because you don't see it unless you are super crazy familiar with the Old Testament. Jesus does a little thing with this guy that I find to be really interesting, really fascinating. He says to the man, what are the commandments? Right? He asks the man, what are the commandments? And then Jesus lists some. And what's fascinating is that when you hear the word commandment, maybe you think of the Ten Commandments. But back then, when Jesus says the word commandments, everyone thought of the Ten Commandments. This is an entire Jewish society. They definitely knew the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were printed on every synagogue wall. They were visible all over the place. It was a very common thing for them to know the Ten Commandments. So when Jesus says, you know the commandments, what are they? And he starts listing them. Everyone standing around him is going to be confused because he starts with number five. Let me show you. Here are the Ten Commandments. If we list them and paraphrase them, they go like this. No other gods, no other idols. And by the way, uh, Protestant churches and Catholic churches number them differently. Protestant churches number one and two, they separate the God command and the idol command, and they join the covet command at the end. Catholic churches separate the covet command at the end. Don't covet your neighbor's wife, and then also don't cover your neighbor's stuff. They separate that, but they join the two commands at the top. Nonetheless, Jesus doesn't give us a numbering order, so we just, this is the numbering order I'm using. No other gods, no other, no idols or representations of God. Don't misuse God's name. Give God one day a week. That's the Sabbath command. Honor your parents. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. And that's a very interesting one because we interpret that to mean don't lie, but you could interpret it as don't under oath while you're sitting in a testimony witness box. Don't say something false then. But other times, go ahead and manipulate people however you want. And so that's one way people interpret that one. And then the last one, don't covet, which means don't desire something that rightfully belongs to someone else. Don't covet that other thing. Here's where Jesus starts. He actually starts with six, don't murder. And then he says, don't commit adultery, next. And then after that, Jesus says, don't steal. And then after that, Jesus says, and don't don't bear false testimony. And then, for some reason, Jesus goes back to number eight, and he says, don't defraud people, which is kind of a combination of false testimony and stealing but it's an interesting thing that Jesus is adding a second layer, just a second push in the whole button point of the financial thing, don't steal. And then he says, honor your parents. And he mentions these ones right here. He mentions these five. And he looks at the guy. And the guy says, oh, I've kept them all. Because... 
certain people find it really easy to keep these commands. Let's say your parents are wealthy. It's really easy to keep that command because one of these days you're going to get that inheritance. And so you've got high motivation to do whatever it takes to please them because one of these days you're going to get that inheritance. You don't have to attack any other person which might accidentally lead to murder if you've got all the resources you need. You don't have to commit adultery if you can marry 18 different women. You don't have to steal if you've got everything already. You don't have to bear false testimony because no one wants to know anything about anyone else. They just want to know what you think because you're the one with all the wealth. If you have riches, these commands are incredibly easy to do. But Jesus says something interesting. Did you notice it? Jesus said something interesting to the man. He says, one thing you lack. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack. But it's not one thing. It's five things. This guy is missing five things. He's completely skipped the whole idea of no other gods, no idols, don't misuse God's name, give God one day a week, and don't covet. Jesus has intentionally skipped over those ones. Everyone in the crowd knows it. This man should know it because everyone back then knew the Ten Commandments. He skips over these, and then he looks the guy in the face, and he says, one thing you lack. There are five things he lacks. Which means these five things somehow are one thing. And you know why? Because these five things are really two things. The first four things, they're all about loving God with all that you are. Loving God with your time. Loving God with the things that you look at. The things that you worship. Loving God with your heart. Loving God with how you revere His name. The whole first section is all about loving God. And then the bottom one, coveting, that's just the icing on the love your neighbor cake. Because if my neighbor has a Ferrari and I want that Ferrari, that's the start of me thinking I'm better than my neighbor and I should have that Ferrari, not him. If I am comparing myself to someone else, then instantly I've got a dividing line between me and that other person. And so this is loving God and loving your neighbors. And what Jesus is saying is there is one thing you lack because these five things are really two things, love God and love your neighbor, which, as we've already seen, is just one thing. What Jesus is saying here is just a reiteration of what we've looked at before. Mark chapter 12, verse 29 through 31. The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and your mind and your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. I want you to write down one of the most profound one things that has ever shown up in human history. Loving God is loving others. Is loving God. Loving God equals, is the same thing as loving others, which equals and is the same thing as loving God. If you're pretending you're a person who loves God, ask yourself if you love the people around you. 
And if you're a person who honestly and truly loves the people around you, then you are by that activity also engaging in love for the Heavenly Father who made those people. You can do a lot of stuff to me, but if you do something against one of my children, I'm going to be all kinds upset with you. If you really want to love me, you love my kids. Loving God is loving others. John 4, 21 puts this point clear. It says this. Oh, it should be 1 John 4, 21. Sorry about that. 1 John 4, 21 says, Anyone who loves God must love his brother or sister. Anyone who loves God must love his brother or sister. What Jesus did for this man is he perfectly tailored his recipe for that guy. Sell everything, detoxify. Give to the poor. Break down the wall between you and the other people. Follow me. Get back to loving Jesus. Get back to loving God the way you should. Let me close this down by giving you two things. First, I want to give you a warning. This is a warning on what wealth does to us. I'm just going to give you some blanks that you can fill in, you can write down, that uh, you can apply in your life later on, perhaps. But I want to give you just a warning of the way wealth affects us. Number one, wealth makes us think that God is pleased. A weird thing that money does is that if you have it, you think God has blessed you with it, and therefore you think God is happy with you. If you don't have it, you look at someone else who has it, and you think God has blessed them, and God must be happy with them. There are two mindsets. The person who has the wealth mindset is the person that says, God is happy with me, that's why he's blessed me. The person who doesn't have the wealth mindset says, God is happy with them, that's why he's blessed them, and I need to do something to get God happy with me too. It is an incredibly dangerous place to be, because wouldn't you know it, bad people sometimes sometimes make money. Wouldn't you know it, sometimes people get rich for doing terrible things and being bad people. And it's always been that way. But for some reason in Christian circles, we tie the word blessing with wealth and we're like, oh, God must be blessing that person or God must be blessing that church or God must be blessing that ministry or that other thing because look at how much money they have. Wealth does this. Whether you have a wealth perspective or a poverty perspective, both perspectives can view this thing wrong. Number two, wealth can make us think that we don't need God. If you have ever been in that place where your mind said, all I need is a little more money. Have you ever, have you ever had that thought? All I need is just a little bit more money. All I need is just 10 more bucks. All I need is just 20 more bucks. All I need is this one bill to be paid. All I need is for this one debt to be off my shoulders. All I need is just a little bit more money. As soon as you say that, all I need is just a little bit more money, you are admitting to yourself that there is something in this world more important and more powerful than God. 
Because the people who have a wealth mindset, they have all this wealth, and they're like, no, I can make things happen for myself. I don't need God. I can just do the thing for myself. I got my insurance. It's taking care of that stuff. I got my good car. If I need a new car, I'll buy a new car. And if anything tragic happens to me, I got plastic in my wallet. I can take care of that situation too. I got resources. I can take care of myself. And the person with the poverty mindset, that person's like, oh my goodness, I'm going through such terrible stuff. If I had more money, all I need is more money and then my problems would be solved. All I need is more money and then I'd be able to handle these things in my life. Wealth can make us think we don't need God. Number three, wealth can make us think we deserve what we have. Man, I got to where I am because I worked hard at it. I got to where I am because if you have a, if you have a, a wealth mindset, then you think, wow, I'm such a good person. I did such a good job managing my money. I invested well. I did this thing. I went to school and I got a good degree and then I got a good job and I've made such great progress. I really deserve what I've earned. And then the poverty mindset person says, oh my goodness, those people, they're hard workers and I'm just, I'm just lazy. I've missed my opportunities. I haven't taken advantage of my opportunities. I'm just going to blame myself. I'm just going to feel really bad about myself. And this person's feeling really good about themselves. And both of them are wrong. Wealth doesn't mean you deserved it. Wealth means for some strange reason God allowed you to have more than you need. Next, it makes us think we deserve even more. I have never met a wealthy person who thought they were a wealthy person. I've never met a rich person who didn't kind of have their sights on the next step. Now, I'm sure there are many wealthy people that I know who haven't ever admitted to me how rich they are. And those people, I can say, I also don't know if they know how rich they are because maybe they're just humble and maybe they're just like that. But there have been some times in my life when I have encountered a really rich person and I thought to myself, they had everything that they needed and they said something to me or communicated something to me like they weren't aware of how rich they were, like they had this other need in their life or their other thing. Do you know how I know that? Because it has been me. Because back when my family had one car, we had a car. Back when my family had the same size house as everyone else in our neighborhood, we had a neighborhood. Back when my family had two parents with two college-educated jobs, we had two incomes. I kid you not, I've been rich my whole life. But the last thing money can do to us is that it can also make us think that others don't deserve it. Other people are getting what they deserve. Because I'm getting what I deserve. You know, I worked hard for my education. I worked hard to be born in the family I was born in. I worked, I worked hard to be born in this nation at the time I was born for all of the pleasantries that I get to experience. I worked so hard. I deserve Man, I was born with this skin and this gender, and I deserve everything that comes with it. And other people don't. Money separates us from other people. 
because we can get judgmental against them. Why don't they have everything that they should have? Maybe they're lazy. Maybe they haven't worked hard enough. But Jesus said one thing. He said, love your Father in heaven and love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, and would you like to know how to do that? Let me show you 1 John 3.16. It says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Sell everything. Give to the poor. Follow me, he says. One thing. If you want to know what love is like, Jesus died for us. We give our lives for others. I want to ask you to ask yourself three questions as we close out our time today and as we're preparing for our time of communion and offering. This man that we just looked at is blocked from his one thing because he has allowed wealth to change his ability to love. And for you and me, wealth is one thing for us to consider. But I want to ask you about your mindset. Are you a person who has the abundance mindset? The mindset that says everything is available as long as you work for it, as long as you do the right thing to get it, and you're striving for that, and you're blaming the other people who don't? Or do you have the poverty mindset, the mindset that says some people just have it, and I've missed out? In both of those mindsets, you are separating yourself from the other person. You are blaming yourself or praising yourself, whichever it is, but you're isolating yourself from really showing love to the other person. There's a third mindset we could have, and it is the mindset I call the living water mindset. It's a mindset that says everything God has given to me has, has been designed by God to flow through me. God pours out his love into me, and I pour it out to others. God brings blessing into my life and I bring blessing to others. And I'm going to trust that God is a God who gives to givers. I'm going to trust that God gives to givers because God is a giving God. And why would he ever give to a taker? He's going to give to a giver. And so I'm going to trust that whatever he's given to me, he intends for me to give. And therefore, he can give me more. Not more for me to accumulate, more for me to continue giving. I want us to have the living water mindset. The mindset that says infinite resources are mine from my heavenly Father. And whether it means my money or my time or just my love, I'm going to give to other people what I have and trust for God to replenish it the way it needs to be replenished. God doesn't just give to me. He intends to give through me. And that's what Jesus demonstrated. This is how we know what love is, that Jesus gave his life for us. As we come to communion this morning, we are receiving the Jesus who dies for us. And we are taking it into us. We are ingesting it into us. And as the old saying goes, we are what we eat. And so we say, I want to be like Jesus. And if his blood is poured out for me, if his body is broken for me, I want to be that 
for people around me. Maybe it's your money, maybe it's your heart, maybe it's something else, but I want to be that person who loves like Jesus. I'm going to ask you to spend a moment in silence. I'm going to say a prayer for us, and then I'm going to ask you to just spend a moment in silence and reflection, and we'll sing a final song, inviting Jesus into this place in a special way. But then as we sing that song, I'll invite you to come forward, take communion, bring your offering or your tithe, and let's be people who embrace the gratitude with the intention to spread that to others. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.